Welcome to the Now You Know Akron podcast, brought to you by the journalists of BeaconJournal.com. Each week, they will share their expertise on Akron and Summit County. Now, here's your host, Craig Webb. Thanks for joining us for the Now You Know Akron podcast. I'm your host, Craig Webb. In today's podcast, we'll be taking a look at the Akron Zoo. It's going to be opening its new Wild Asia exhibit this weekend, and also take a look at the future and how the zoos have changed over the years. But first, here's three things you should know from recent headlines from BeaconJournal.com. It seems there's nothing like the great outdoor to say I do. We recently told the stories of wedding ceremonies being held at a gazebo in Springfield Lake. The couples are among the first to take advantage of the outdoor weddings that are being offered by the Akron Municipal Court at different locations through August. The court also plans to offer weddings at the Akron Art Museum's gardens, the Summit County Historical Society's Mutton Hill, and the Howard House Museum's South Lawn. This is all part of the creative ways the court is adapting amid the global pandemic. Mourners gathered over the weekend to say farewell to the Reverend Ernest Ainsley. They gathered inside of his Grace Cathedral in Cuyahoga Falls for a more than long hour-long ceremony. The televangelist died May 7th at the age of 99 after a decline in health. His ministry in Akron dates back to the 1950s, and as it grew, a global audience moved into Cuyahoga Falls in the mid-1990s with the purchase of what became the Grace Cathedral on State Road. Drivers will have to make adjustments as they make their way through Akron this summer. The first part of the Ohio Department of Transportation's $160 million Central Interchange Project will shut down the Kenmore leg of I-76 from June 3rd through mid-August. ODOT's District 4 has announced that the eight ramp closures for the first week of June will help manage traffic as workers work to rebuild Interstate 77 in the areas of Interstate 76 and 77 near the Kenmore leg between East Avenue and Vernon Odom Boulevard. For more of these stories and more, be sure to visit BeaconJournal.com or our various apps. You can purchase a print version of your newspaper at various retail outlets. And now, our Spotlight Story of the Day. For today's Spotlight subject, we're going to talk with the animals, or at least a person who might have the coolest job in Akron. He may disagree some days, but uh, we're joined by Akron Zoo President and CEO Doug Piakosh, who has been who became the zoo's leader in 2015. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. And yeah, I do feel like I have the best job around because the mission of the zoo and the mission of my heart are one and the same. And when that happens, you just can't help but love your work. So it's been a pretty quiet year at the zoo. Nothing going on. Pretty ho hum. You know, just uh, right. Or am I wrong? Am I uh, when when you have roughly 2,000 animal residents that you interact with and care for every day, uh, there is no such thing as ho-hum. But, of course, at one point, all you had was animal occupants, right? I mean, there was no visitors for how long? That's true. We uh, Last March 17th, uh, along with the rest of society, uh, we were shut down for <clears throat> just under 100 days from March 17th to June 17th. And uh, that was definitely a shock to the system and, you know, something that wasn't expected. And uh, not it wasn't expected for us as part of the management team, but it was also not expected by our animal residents in the park. And 
just being able to gauge the impact of missing guests from the zoo in the eye through the eyes of our animals. Um, it, you could experience the joy when we were finally able to reunite guests with the animals they care about in the park and see the interaction between those animals and the guests after not seeing it for almost a hundred days it was pretty incredible. You know, during that period of time though, there was an awful lot of things that nobody really knew, uh, how to anticipate, um, as the pandemic began and, and data came across and we found out, for example, that COVID-19 could spread fairly easily from our, our animal care staff to big cats, especially based on things that had happened in other zoos. It caused us to completely change our protocols, um, also removing things like behind the scenes tours for our guests and just greater levels of personal protective equipment for our staff to ensure the safety of our animals. And now more than a year into it, we haven't had any animal infections of COVID-19 on site. Um, nor do we expect them based on what we know today. Um, but that constant challenge of literally every night things changing and us not being able to predict what was coming next was very difficult. And I, I know we were not the only organization experiencing that. Everybody was experiencing it, whether you led an organization or you led a household. Um, but it really led to things like uh, what my staff referred to as nightly news with Doug, um, that came out an email to my staff every night from March 17th until the end of the year, just reflecting everything that we had learned that day that would impact how we were able to work the next day. But going beyond that and also delivering on what was expected of individuals, what was expected of families out in the community in general, because I really felt with the volume of information that was coming across my desk and I was having challenges figuring out, you know, what was actionable and what wasn't. I tried to make it very easy for the zoo's staff to be able to care for their families and for our animal residents at the same time in the midst of all that uncertainty. The other thing that happened during that time, our gates being closed to a community that we love was a significant obstacle and challenge for us to really make our mission come alive. And one of the things, one of the conversations around that was, how do we turn this into an economy of grace? How do, how do we actually create circumstances and a brand new um, set of cultural norms since we can't interact with guests, ensuring that our staff was kind to themselves and, and engaged in self-care, kind to each other and supportive of one another, and then kind to the community and look for ways to lift up the community that we've never even thought of before, simply because we couldn't invite people in the gate. And the end result of those conversations were, were nothing short of phenomenal, because, for example, moving all of our, our education programming for free and online in 2019, we reached just over 90,000 individuals um, across Northeast Ohio with our education programming. During those three months of closure, we reached 3.4 million people with our education programming online. And like that kind of thing would have never occurred to us had we not been put in this situation of looking to reach people with our mission while not being able to be in front of them, not being able to invite them on site or into our classrooms or even to have our nine educators working in the classrooms in Akron Public Schools or any of the other school systems in the area that we would normally work with. 
So a lot of innovation occurred during that time as we really rethought how our mission connects with our community. So um, challenging, but also somewhat refreshing because it, it caused us to look at things through a completely new lens. I don't really ever want to repeat that period of time again because it was also extremely stressful for everybody. But often out of the greatest challenges comes the greatest innovation, and and that's how I look at that period of time. But unlike some attractions that just simply turned off the lights, closed the door, locked everything up, you you could do that. I mean, you you have all these animals who who look to you for care, and and how I mean, how did that go financially? Obviously, you know, you are taxpayer supported, but that's not the whole pie, right? Right. Um, Akron Zoo's overall mix, we are 50% tax supported uh, through a Summit County levy. And, and let me just take this opportunity to say thank you to the voters of Summit County who did support us last November. Really appreciate it because without that, our ability to deliver on our mission and our ability to support the community, both with our education programming and also with a great recreational experience that's affordable to everyone, it, it, it would be dramatically harder if not possible. Um, so truly, thank you from the bottom of my heart on behalf of all of our animal residents and our staff. But the other part of the pie that comes from earned revenue and philanthropic support, when the gates close, it turns the faucet of earned revenue from high to zero off. And that that is a huge challenge. And it's a huge challenge for any facility, regardless of level of public support, because public support rarely is 100% of the operating support for an organization. And for us, seeing 50% of our, our revenue that supports park operations to go to zero, um, it, it really caused us to take a step back and very first look at wh- what it what it is in the overall operating budget that can be immediately cut. So we were actually thankful if a closure like this had to happen that it happened in March before we had staffed up for a busy summer because what one of there were three promises that I made to the staff. The first promise was we were not going to lay off our permanent year-round staff. The second promise was that our animals will not know there's a pandemic out there. And the third promise was that we were going to keep the zoo on solid financial footing to survive this national emergency that we haven't seen in a 100 years. And ultimately, we achieved all three goals by year end. So it it took a lot of work. But, for example, when we went to look at our budget cuts, which were in the millions of dollars, those budget cuts came from areas other than the staff support because, frankly, whether we're open or not, our year-round staffing provides everything that the 2,000 animal residents in our park need in order to be able to thrive in in within the zoo. I, it's not something that we can simply remove. We absolutely need it or we cease to function as an, an accredited zoological park. And then moving from there after those expense budget cuts – we looked at, okay, where can we put together campaigns to ask people to consider supporting the zoo? And our our development office put together a couple of emergency campaigns, and people were very generous during that period of time because we were able to articulate the lost revenue, which, again, was in the millions, 
Um, we were able to articulate the impact of the budget cuts that had to be made no matter what, and people did come forward and help us with that. And at the same time, the federal government came through with the Paycheck Protection Plan and the Paycheck Protect pay, the PPP loan actually made a, a huge difference for us. Um, in being able to keep our promises. So I'm very grateful to all of our elected officials who supported that program. I'm very grateful to the community in general who supported us through um, those emergency funding campaigns. And I'm grateful to the people who came back out to the zoo despite being on, the, on a 25% capacity restriction, meaning when we reopened on June 17th, we were not allowed to reopen at full capacity. We were able to reopen for the outside portions of our park at 25% of the capacity the park had to engage guests. So we then operated for the rest of the calendar year at a 75% handicap. Um, and the combination between the philanthropic support, the PPP loan, and also the ability to engage at 25% brought us through the end of the year um, in, in, a, in a positive place. Not the greatest place we've ever been, but at least in a positive place where the animals didn't know there was a pandemic out there. We did not need to engage in layoffs of permanent staff. Uh, we obviously did not hire the, the temporary and seasonal positions we would normally hire in a given year, um, but our permanent staff was secured, which was really a critical component for us. What is your operating capacity now? Have you increased that from 25%? The the governor um, gave us permission in March to increase from 25 to 30% outdoors, um, and then there was a surprise move in early April that – all of a sudden removed all capacity restrictions. Um, the challenge for us is we were instructed to expect a slow reopening. So that, that has actually been our business plan through this year, a slow-paced reopening that would kind of sit alongside the vaccination program because that was the feedback we were getting. Um, but in a surprise move early in April, um, outdoor venues like us were told our outdoor portions could go to 100%, but we're not ready from a staffing standpoint. So what our intent is, we will be maintaining the 30% capacity from now through May 30th, um, assuming all goes well and we're able to staff up to that. Um, then in June, we'll be at 50% staff up. In July, we'll be at 75, and by August 1st, we'll be at 100% capacity. And now that, that assumes that nothing else happens from a regulatory standpoint between now and then. The only oddity to it is indoor buildings in the zoo, um, because of the, the remaining restrictions, they remain at a 25% capacity. So um, the indoor buildings themselves will not be freely flowing in and out, even when we reach 100% capacity outdoors, because we still have to restrict the number of people into those indoor locations. So by the end of summer, we may have no more time tickets, possibly. Uh, that's that's possible. I, I can't commit to that right now, because it really depends on what's going on overall. Um, but I would expect that we would look at um, maybe even maintaining time tickets for certain people. Um, there, uh, well, let me take that back. Not time tickets for certain people, but there may be certain circumstances where everything we've learned about time ticketing since we reopened in June would be best. And we would look at that on a case-by-case basis. But once we go back to full capacity, we may not have a need for it. 
Um, we just need to walk very cautiously from where we are today to the point where we reach the ability to engage 100% capacity again as an organization, um, just to make sure that that there's no area that is more frustrating for our guests than it needs to be. Um, that That's really the bottom line. So the proverbial elephant in the room, we, we should mention, you do have something new opening this year. It's been, I don't know, a decade in the making maybe, or maybe not quite that long or close to it. Yeah, it actually has been roughly, uh, 14 years in the making, um, because we, this, this plan came together that, that landed in, in the construction of Pride of Africa, which opened in 2019, and now Wild Asia, which is opening in 21. The formal plan that outlined it, uh, actually was signed off by our board in 2014. Um, but, the thought process behind developing that plan stretched out many years before that. Wild Asia actually replaces the oldest portion of the Akron Zoo, a portion of the zoo that used to be known as Tiger Valley. Um, Tiger Valley was actually the first uh, large-scale uh, habitat experience developed at the zoo um, since we were accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums back in 1989. Um, that space, however, uh, no longer met modern zoological standards and it it needed to be replaced. One of the interesting things about um, working with and for an accredited zoological park, we base all of our animal care decisions on animal welfare science. And animal welfare science every year kind of pushes the bar of our understanding of the animals that we care so deeply about. And generally, about every 20 years, a complete overhaul of what is modern zoological practice happens within our profession, and it's all for the benefit of the animals that we care about. So this replacement of Tiger Valley was kind of the functional reason for rebuilding that space, but there's there's also an educational reason and a mission reason for us. Educate, well, what I always call our mission triangle is connection, lifelong learning, and conservation action, because our mission is to connect your life to wildlife while inspiring lifelong learning and conservation action. So everything we do goes back through that mission triangle, and if it fails to connect people to wildlife, which is the absolute first step in saving the world, you know, okay, I get a little corny, but it truly is saving the world. If people aren't connected to something, they don't care about it, they don't fall in love with it, they're less likely to act on it and actually preserve it. So Wild Asia itself now engages all of the modern practices of connecting people to wildlife. Um, it moves lifelong learning on a large scale because what we're looking to do with this particular area is to connect you to reasons and abilities to save wildlife, to save wildlife in Asia. But it's going to be talking about things we do here that actually do have impacts there while you end up engaging with the individual animal ambassadors in this region. So Echo and Deburu are two Sumatran tigers. You'll be engaging with them in unique ways while learning about their story and what you might be able to do in your grocery store in order to support the conservation of Sumatran tigers. So it's looking to make those types of connections for people in real time so that not only do they care about Sumatran tigers, 
but they learn and engage about their current situation, their natural history, and the potential things that you can do from Akron, Ohio, and then it moves you to conservation action. And that conservation action in this case may not be going out and preserving that forest that the last 400 Sumatran tigers live in, but actions you take in your supermarket with, for example, sustainable palm oil directly does impact preserving the forest for the Sumatran tiger on the island of Sumatra. And so it's these connections that are otherwise invisible to people that we want to make visible because folks always say, you know, how can I get involved? What can I do to save endangered tigers? Well, here's something tangible that you can do. Evaluate the products you're buying. Make sure if they use palm oil that it's sustainably harvested palm oil that directly works on saving Sumatran tigers and many of the other species you're going to see throughout wild Asia. It's a significant conservation concern. And then you also have I mean, I like to call it the Disney effect, but, you know, that folks don't simply want to walk up to just a window and look at it. Well, they, they kind of want that immersive experience. And I think Wild Asia delivers that. Yeah, absolutely. And the immersive experience, you know, one of the things years ago, the way we engage people with wildlife has changed over the last 50 years pretty dramatically. It went from a place where 50 years ago it was kind of like walking through the pages of an encyclopedia and kind of seeing individual animals and talking about how they're related. Then in the 70s and early 80s, it was actually visiting with animals in a setting that was reminiscent only of their natural environment. And that level of immersive uh, response was very positive from actually not seeing the animals in an encyclopedia, so to speak, but actually inviting people into their habitat. But what was missing was the role of the person in the habitat and its impact on the animal. Where we are today is we're really looking to engage that level of of connection and interaction while bringing the human culture of that space into the equation as well, because ultimately many, not all, but many of the threats wildlife face today are driven by the individual choices that people make every day. And so moving people from making what I would call environmentally mindless choices on a daily basis to making to to engaging with them so that they can make more environmentally mindful choices on a daily basis, then we have a chance to actually overcome the environmental challenges that our planet faces in real time. Because right now what we're facing is a situation where the sum total of all of the individual environmentally mindless choices that are made by 7 billion people every day lead to the environmental challenges that we're trying to address. So imagine the creative force we would unleash just by teaching people about more environmentally mindful decision-making on a daily basis, because then you leverage the same 7 billion people to help correct the problem together. And I think there's a lot of power in that. And the way that we're laying out Wild Asia is looking to engage that power starting from right here in Akron, Ohio. So I guess the, the question a lot of folks ask, maybe you hear it all the time, is you know, we said the proverbial elephant in the room, but like why no elephants at the zoo? I mean, I, I think folks don't realize that it actually is a curated collection of animals. It's not just random, right? Oh, absolutely. And I'll I'll kind of address this in two ways. First, Why not elephants at the Akron Zoo? Every zoological park has a a different support behind them. 
in order for us, for example, to choose to engage with African elephants or with Asian elephants, I would say close to half of, of the entry portion of our zoo would have to go away to dedicate the space that would be necessary to do a really good job of, of effectively managing the welfare of elephants and human care. Our site is not big enough. That's, that's really the, the biggest bottom line. We do not have enough land at the Akron Zoo to do a really good job to manage African elephants or Asian elephants. The second issue is if you imagine half of the zoo, I mean, literally, all of uh, Legends of the Wild, our Penguin Point exhibit, our Welcome Center, our Komodo Kingdom and our Education Center, our Carousel area, and then probably a portion of Wild Asia and Grizzly Ridge would be involved in what would be necessary to effectively manage well a group of African or Asian elephants. So it would take up roughly half of the zoo. It is not, therefore, it's not a good engagement for us because we don't have enough space. And on top of it, the cost of managing African or Asian elephants is very high. So looking at where we are right now, we have chosen to make a big difference with species that we know are affordable for the level of support and the land space that we currently have available to us. Because ultimately, we feel um, as, as a leadership team, if we cannot provide exceptional care for the animals, both in physical space and in engagement, then we don't have any business caring for them. They should be somewhere else. And we're very happy, for example, leaving the Cleveland Zoo with the focus on elephants because they have the space and they have the support and they can do a very good job with elephant welfare where it would be much harder for the Akron Zoo to do that. Um, and Akron Zoo and Cleveland Zoo are two unique spaces. Akron Zoo is a, a, a not-for-profit. Cleveland Zoo is a governmental entity. Um, the two of them have completely different sets of resources supporting them. And ultimately, all of that goes into the decision of which species do we feel we can do an exceptionally good job with. And elephants happen to not be one of them. Um, the species that we do have um, that that live with us at the zoo that, that are our animal residents today we very specifically work to become experts in their care. And in fact, much of our staff, for example, run species survival programs or actually sit on the steering committee of a species survival program for individual species that we care for on a regular basis. So it's not even that we've become experts in their care, but we've become internationally renowned experts in their care. So we do a, a really good job with all of the animals that that are part of, as you said, this curated collection. That's a, a good way to look at it. However, with living animals, it's it's not like curating an art collection. There's a, a lot more moving parts, as you would imagine, and animal behavior is just sometimes as unpredictable as human behavior is. So there's a lot that goes into the overall art and science of animal welfare and animal care. And sometimes the blue lobster just arrives from red lobster from Kaiga yes. Falls, you know. Absolutely. You know, sometimes you, you get a rarity that that is important to step forward and to highlight and to focus on. And that blue lobster was nothing short of amazing. And its story is equally amazing. And what you may not realize behind it, the the project, because a lot of people see the picture of the blue lobster and they think she's beautiful and they want to come out and see her. And 
But what's really behind that is a long-standing conservation partnership between the Akron Zoo, the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Seafood Watch, and Red Lobster. And it was that program that actually rescued that blue lobster in recognizing its rarity and the value of talking about it because the value of talking about it has a lot, well, it's got a lot to do with her, but it also has a lot to do with calling attention to Seafood Watch and the fact that it's working to preserve our oceans and it's working to preserve the fish stocks from a sustainable harvest standpoint, kind of going back to the point I made earlier about people making environmentally mindful decisions on a daily basis, actually supporting conservation, Seafood Watch provides a card and it tells you when you go to the supermarket which fish you can buy to support the health of the ocean and which fish you should not buy because if you do, you're directly having a negative impact on the oceans. And it's it's this kind of information with 7 billion people on the planet that really needs to get out and bringing this blue lobster having it recognized at red lobster working through project seafood watch and then coming to the akron zoo allows us to provide greater focus to lifelong learning and conservation action don fails to mention the role of the cheddar garlic um, biscuits from red lobster also but we'll have a whole other podcast to discuss that <laughs> So I know this construction project was a challenge. It was constructed on the side of a hill. For those of you who are you're familiar with the Akron Zoo, and and I know you cringe when I say this, but you know what's next? Well, we're in the midst actually of figuring out what's next right now because our strategic planning period at the zoo has kicked off. Um, what we do know, uh, for example, during our levy campaign, we pointed out that Pride of Africa Phase Two, which would feature giraffes is the direction that we're traveling. So now that the voters have voted very much in favor of that, we will be developing that out further. Um, and I would anticipate that probably uh, somewhere in the next five to seven years, because the, the, this levy period is what we, what, what we would be using to figure out and time that opening. One of the unique things about the Akron Zoo, though, um, we do not build things without knowing that we've saved enough money in the bank to pay for that project. You know, many other organizations choose to take out debt. We feel as a recipient of taxpayer funds and taxpayer trust, we do not want to take out loans um, and have to pay interest on them. So we save every year in order to go and fund all of these capital projects. We do put um, uh, philanthropic campaigns alongside them. Um, but ultimately, we're not going to put a shovel in the ground until we know we have the money to pay for it. So that's one of the things that would push this off, in my opinion, to probably somewhere between year five and seven in this 10-year levy cycle. And right now, that's what I can definitely tell you, because we are committed to opening a Pride of Africa Phase 2 to continue telling the story of rebuilding the Pride, which is the most successful African lion conservation program in Kenya. Um, and in fact, the primary investigators for rebuilding the Pride and the, the president of council for the Maasai Mara people both came to Akron, not only helped us plan this first phase of, of Pride of Africa, but also engaged with our local schools, our local media, talking about what was being represented in this, this space as Pride of Africa. And we will be continuing that partnership with them as we continue to build out Pride of Africa phase two featuring giraffes.
And for my final question, I, I have to say, for those of you listening at home, that you cannot see this um, or listening to your podcast, Doug has um, penguins in the background, and um, I have been well known in my hatred of the penguins at the Akron Zoo. I've called them jerks on many occasions in articles, and I will, for those of you who don't know the story, I, I took my young son to the zoo one time. Um, he went to point at a penguin, and my glasses fell off into the penguin tank, and they began to swim around, chew on them. They threw them in the air. It became quite the spectacle. In fact, people were walking up saying, what kind of monster puts glasses in with penguins? And, you know, they, they kindly did retrieve my, my scratch-up glasses with penguin slop and glop all over them. So uh, I, I'm not a fan of penguins, but I just my question to you, Doug, what, what's your favorite animal to zoo? Well, I got to tell you, I'm going to call you out on this. You dropped your glasses in the penguin pool, and it made a spectacle out of it. I see what you did there. It might be a felony. In fact, I, I think it might. <laughs> there could be federal charges. <laughs> well, my my favorite animal at the zoo is kind of like asking which one of my three daughters is my favorite daughter. You know, there there is not there's not a question there because. I, I do what I do because I care so deeply about every single one of these animal residents. I don't care if it's a partula snail that's as small as the, the tip of my pinky or if it's one of our Sumatran tigers or one of our dozen or more um, Humboldt penguins. However, the way I've answered other people when they've asked that question, where has my love and passion been? I'm a trained ornithologist. I, I, I'm a biologist by degree and ornithologist by trade. And I've done an awful lot of work in water bird conservation in, in the U.S. and in other countries. And so my, my love, my love of wildlife, it stemmed from all of that. And if I had to say where, where is my passion, I would classify myself across the forehead as bird nerd, as many other birders tend to refer to themselves. And that's a, that's a place where I find a lot of joy. So there's a reason I chose the penguin background as opposed to Grizzly Ridge, um, because it just, it fits with that, that ultimate passion that sits on my heart and my love of ornithology. Well, we can agree to disagree and, uh, we continue <laughs> to be. So thanks, Doug, for joining us. And the, the new exhibit will open at the end of the month on Memorial Day weekend. And feel free to ship the penguins off to the Pittsburgh Zoo. I cannot think of a more appropriate city for them. Well, the next time you come, just let me know. I'll be your bodyguard as you pass the penguin exhibit. You know, I think we can work this out. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care, guys. That's all the time we have today for the Now You Know Akron podcast. We'd like to thank our producer, BJ Lisko, who works behind the scenes to make this podcast make sense and possible. Be sure to join us again next week. Episodes are released every Wednesday wherever you can download your favorite podcasts and available on BeaconJournal.com and our various apps. We urge you to support local journalism by becoming a subscriber. If you've already signed up, we thank you. Until next week, now you know Akron.